Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance. And this is episode 56. Now, in this episode, I thought I'd talk a little bit about financial derivatives. So what are derivatives? Now, for all the math geeks out there, remember back in high school, studying derivatives, one of my favorite topics in mathematics ever, it's basically the rate of change of a function at any given time. In other words, if you have a curve, it's constantly changing its slope. And that slope can be drawn as a tangent to that changing slope. And that tangent line changes based on where it's drawn on the slope. So if you pick a point on the tangent, the derivative is basically the slope of the tangent. Now that we've got the maths out of the way, let's focus on the financial equivalent of a derivative. Now before we get on to the main topic, I just had a really nice vacation during school holidays. It was three weeks of school holidays, so we spent part of that time overseas um, in a very chilled tropical environment. Um, it's amazing to get away from the cold of Melbourne. Um, and we also spend some time in South Australia. Um, so that was fantastic. But you know what? It's always nice to come back to Melbourne, which I still, which is relatively biased here, is the best city in Australia, if not the world, hands down. That's my personal opinion. I'm a avid Melbourne fan. Ironically, I grew up in Adelaide. But I moved to Melbourne um, after medical school, and it was just, uh, I don't know, I just love Melbourne. So um, so sorry for all the non-Melbourneites out there. Now, if you're new to this podcast channel, the main premise is this, pay yourself first. Now, what does that mean? Always aim to take a certain percentage of your income and set it aside as savings and investments. Now, you can start at 5% or 10%. Start low, go slow, it doesn't matter, but start somewhere. It has to be after-tax income, it's not before-tax income. So if you've listened to my podcast episodes, I always rave on about after-tax income because that's reality. Uh, before-tax income is not reality. Um, and then you can build it up slowly to over 10, 15, and ideally, I think people should be saving about 20% of their after-tax income. That is, they pay yourself money. So, there are five steps in my opinion. Step one, pay yourself first. Take that 20% of after-tax income and set it aside. Step two, always invest that money straight off the top before you get the chance to spend it and make sure you don't sort of think about it. Make sure it kind of happens soonish and earlyish as soon as you get paid. Step three, keep investing um, the dividends that you might be receiving from those previous investments. Never, ever cash out the dividends. Step four, invest for the long term, 20, 30, 40, or even 50 years, depending on how early you start. And this is why starting very early is absolutely critical for your financial health. 
And step five, this is my favorite, always try and automate all the other steps, which means as soon as you get paid, automatically 20% goes into the investments, automatically those dividends get reinvested, and automatically this happens over 30 or 40 years. Now, if you repeat the steps one to five and keep doing it forever, it's likely you will end up with more wealth than you'll ever needed in your life. With wealth comes responsibility, in my humble opinion. Remember, money is just a tool. You can use that tool whichever way you like to enhance your life and, most importantly, the lives of people around you. Now, just a couple of heads up about what's happened in the news over the last three weeks um, during my holidays. In recent times in Australia, the Reserve Bank has announced and dropped its interest rate even further to 0.75%. This is the lowest on record it's ever been in Australia. Now, if you own a home, this should transfer onto you, provided the banks have fully passed on those interest rates to you. I know some of the big banks have not done that, but they have passed on some of those interest rates to you. So, you know, there is some savings there, which is good news. Um, Now, the banks that haven't passed on the full interest rate cuts, which is a little bit disappointing, but at least you're getting something. Um, Now, remember, I'm not a financial advisor, um, so I don't know your personal circumstances. So always take advice from a professional such as your accountant or financial advisor, uh, not from a random doctor that's trying to do podcasts. But here is my two cents in case you're wondering what you should do in this economic climate where the Reserve Bank interest rates are at their lowest, which means I think sometime this month you're going to be getting an interest rate cut on your home loan, I hope, provided it's on variable home loan terms. Now, if your interest rates on your mortgage drops, ignore it. Keep paying it off as it never did. Suppose you bought a home at interest rate of about 5%. If you had kept paying it at the same payment, you will crush years off your loan. It's a very, very simple strategy. In other words, when you bought your home at 5% interest rate, which obviously you could have afforded at that time, and now the interest rate's dropping, you can still afford the same home at 5%. What's changed? Nothing much unless you're having severe financial hardships. So let's use an example here. If you had a $500,000 home loan after deposit, that is, at a rate of 5% per annum, bought some years ago, monthly repayments, principal and interest at 5% would have been $2,684. The same loan, now the interest rate has dropped to 3.5%, let's say, over consecutive interest rates cuts over a number of years in Australia. Monthly repayment, principal and interest is now $2,245. Do you continue to pay the original $2,684 or the new $2,245? If you have a variable rate, your bank may automatically adjust the monthly repayment and reduce it. I think this is a red flag. I don't allow my bank to do that, and I suggest you don't allow your bank to do that. You can actually pay more than what is the required mortgage payment uh, per month. You can actually set it at a higher. I know my bank allows that, which is what I've done for many, many years. And of course, that's how you pay off your mortgages as quickly and own your home outright as quickly as possible. Remember, the bank's main aim is to make money. They don't care who you are. They don't care if you make money or not. They don't care how big or how lovely your home is. Okay, perhaps that's a bit harsh. Uh, I'm sure there are some people in the bank who actually care. For example, your banker or your personal business manager. 
But it's kind of true. I mean, these are corporations, and their main aim is to make money for their shareholders. You are a home loan number to your bank to some extent. They are banking, sorry for the pun, I had to do that there. They are banking on you paying as little as possible to your mortgage. The minimum repayments is what they're banking on. Your aim is to pay as much as possible to the mortgage, to the bank, because that way you own your home sooner, and therefore you pay less interest over those 30 years, and therefore you save money. So think about it like a soccer game. You are the player with the soccer ball, and you're trying to score into the goal. And the goalkeeper is the bank, and the goal is your home. That is your ultimate prize to try and own your own home. So what the goalie is trying to do is trying to defend the goalpost. That's what the banks are trying to do. And your aim is to get it past the goalie and own that home, get the ball into the goal. So the longer you have a mortgage, the more money the bank makes. Simple, because the longer the mortgage is, the more interest you pay over the life of the loan. If you don't reduce your monthly repayment, guess how many years you would have saved in interest in the above example. Now, your extra repayment in the above example is about $400 per month. Now, this is staggered over multiple interest rate cuts, of course, so bear with me as I you know, did some rough calculations here. Let's say over the interest rate cuts, the average extra repayment is even just $250 per month. The number of years and the interest saved if you had done this over the life of the loan, assume you start in year one, is four years and 11 months. Now, what's four years and 11 months out of 30 years? Who cares? It's not a big deal, is it? Well, it is. That's actually $85,000. In other words, $85,000 divided by four years and 11 months over five years is just under 20 grand pay rise that you've been given to you just by saving that interest. So if you wanted to give someone $85,000 over four years and 11 months, I know a great guy who does regular podcasts about personal finances to whom you want to give money to. So essentially, you've just paid yourself $85,000 over the lifetime of the loan. Now, that's not a bad side hustle, some might say. All right, so the bank is trying to reduce interest rates, which is great. Um, the media are talking about you using that extra money and contributing to the economy and spending and spending and spending and, you know, buy things that you don't need and probably don't like anyway. Don't. Pay off your loans, pay off your consumer debts and go back. Uh, I've talked about debt paying strategies in one of my earlier episodes and I've talked about budgeting strategies for homes and mortgages in my earlier episodes. If you haven't listened to that, then go back and listen to it. Now to the main topic, what are derivatives? I actually found this concept quite advanced and took me a while to understand it, so bear with me as I try and dissect it into little digestible pieces. A derivative is a contract between two people or more people, and the value of the derivative is based on an agreed-upon underlying financial asset. Now we're going to go into this in depth and we're going to use examples to try and you know, make it as simple as possible. But essentially, it's a contract between two people and the value of the derivative, the value of the contract, is based on the agreed upon underlying financial asset. So what financial asset? Well, the financial asset can be stocks, indices, bonds, commodities like gas, oil or iron ore, currencies, and even interest rates. In other words, the derivative's value derives from the underlying financial security. The derivative itself that is the contract itself, is worthless. It's not anything physical except a piece of paper. So just because you own a derivative 
doesn't mean you actually own the underlying asset. This is a very important thing to understand. So what are the various types of derivatives? There are many various types of derivatives. There are options. You might have heard about options trading. There are swaps. You might have heard about credit default swaps. In fact, that's one of the things that happened in the GFC, and I've discussed a little bit about derivatives and credit default swaps in my previous episode about the GFC 1.0. You might have heard about warrants, and you might have heard about future trading. So let's go into each of these subtopics and try and use examples to try and understand them better. Now, disclaimer, I don't do derivatives training. I'm as a simpleton. I keep things as simple as possible. I buy indexes. I keep buying. I reinvest dividends. And I automate the whole process. And I save, you know, 20%, actually more than that, of my after-tax income. Derivatives trading is speculation. I don't speculate. So, first type of derivative is options. It mainly applies to stocks. You can buy options which are derivatives based on the underlying value of the stock. There are two main types of options. Number one, that's called call options. And number two, that is called put options. A call option means you can buy a stated asset at a specific price within a specific time frame. And a put option means you can sell a stated asset at a stated price within a specific time frame. The biggest point here is there is no obligation to buy or sell the stated underlying asset that is financial. It's just a contract which can be broken, quote-unquote. But there is a price to pay for this. If you break that contract, there is a price to pay for this, and that is called the option premium. In other words, a call or a put option is basically gambling or betting on a specific outcome of an underlying asset. And in this case, the outcome is the final price of the underlying stock. Now, what if I said to you that you're probably using this financial principle in your life, possibly most of the days. So let's use a real life example of something very similar using an analogy for you to understand this concept relatively easily. Now, Bill Polis explains it very nicely, and I found it extremely easy to understand. So I'm going to use you know, his concepts, a credit to Bill. It's also a very great channel on YouTube with informative videos about financial concepts. If you haven't learned financial concepts, there are great YouTube channels and Bill Polis is one of them. So let's talk about call options here. Supposing you're selling your home for a million dollars and there is a nearby parcel of land which is empty and that parcel of land is also for sale. There are two parties interested in the empty parcel of land. Both of them have different plans for the land. Party one wants to build a park. They want to buy the land and build a nice park for kids to enjoy. That's very noble. Party two wants to buy the land and develop it and build apartments. Now, Mark, he wants to buy a home. He visits your home and is interested in buying your home. But Mark has a problem. He doesn't have the money to buy your home right away but we'll have it in about three months because, you know, he's getting a new job, he needs some pay slips and the bank won't lend him the money, all that sort of stuff, okay? But he's worried in that three months, your home will be sold. So Mark comes up with an ingenious way to fulfill his dream of buying your home. And here's the plan. This is a call option. 
Mark says he will offer you $5,000, you, the homeowner, and that's called the option premium, to take the home off the market. You agree to this. So you are giving Mark the call option to buy your home for a million dollars, the strike price of the underlying financial asset, within the next three months, which is the expiration period. But in return, you will accept his $5,000, which is the call option premium, to take the property off the market. So Mark can exercise the call option at any time in the next three months and buy your home. But Mark is not obligated to do this. Meanwhile, if he walks away from the deal and can't or won't buy the house in that three-month period, you get to keep the $5,000, which is the call option premium. Now, let's look at things in real life, how they play out within that three months, okay? Party one buys the empty parcel of land next door and builds it up in three months as a park. Of course, this means your home value now in three months' time goes up as a result because it's next to a beautiful park. Now it's worth $1.1 million in three months' time. Mark, your potential buyer, prospective buyer, is very happy. He buys your home in three months' time. He exercises his option to do this. Remember, you have a contract with Mark already and the power is with him to exercise or not. He comes in, you get your million dollars plus the $5,000 already paid as an option premium. Mark is very happy. You're also very happy, but probably not as happy as Mark because the value of the home has gone up. So technically, you've lost out, okay? But there is another possibility. Party two buys the parcel of land, which is empty, and has plans to build a massive apartment. Goes to council, gets the approval, and this reduces your home's value potentially. No one wants a massive apartment next to their home, right? So, of course, Mark's now, in three months' time, found out about this council approval of apartments, and he's not happy now to buy your home because it's not worth as much as before. It's lost $100,000 in value, let's say. Mark walks away from the deal, and you get to keep the option premium of $5,000 and then can relist the property on the market. Now, remember, Mark has not exercised his option because with options, he is not obligated to buy your property. So, in this case, he hasn't exercised his option, he's paid you the $5,000 premium, and he's just walked away. You get to keep your house, you get the $5,000, and you get to relist the property in three months' time, but of course now it's worth a little bit less because there's going to be apartment complexes very close to your home. So you're not particularly happy, but hey, you made $5,000. But there's also another possibility. Neither party buys the empty parcel of land, it doesn't affect your property value, Mark still has the option to buy your home or not within that three-month period. So in effect, what is Mark doing here? Mark is controlling a million-dollar asset for a premium of $5,000. You're happy to be controlled that way, and you get to pocket the $5,000 either way. Whether he buys it, whether he walks away, you get the $5,000. The thing is, if Mark chooses to exercise the option to buy your property, you must comply. You're not allowed to say, Sorry, no, I don't want to sell the house anymore because Party One's bought the land and they've built a bark and now it's worth $1.1 million. You can't do that. But you have every right prior to agreeing to this derivative contract to refuse the $5,000 option premium that Mark has offered to pay you 
and demand more. Maybe you want 10, 15, 20, 30, $40,000. And Mark may say, yep, that's fine. Or he may say, no, that's too much. You can negotiate. It depends on how many buyers you think you will get for your property. So if more people are interested in your property, then you can get more option premiums if you wanted to. So let's go back to what a derivative is in this case. We said its value derives from the value of the underlying asset. Now, in this example, the underlying asset is your home. The more your home is valued, the more value the derivative has, i.e., the more premium Mark has to pay for the option to control your home, which is the underlying asset. And that comes with more buyers for your home. If you have more buyers for your home, then you can sort of be demanding of a higher option premium. So that's call options. So hopefully that clarifies it in your mind. And when, technically, you may be doing this to buy property all the time. Okay. And certainly, I've, I've, I've tried to do this um, to take properties off the market by offering a, uh, you know, offering a, a very aggressive price. You, you, you can't technically offer an option premium for buying properties, but you go to a real estate agent and say, I will pay you, you know, $1.5 million by this date, and I'll pay 50% of that in cash. Please take the property off the market. And that might be a premium price to get that property. In fact, the last property that I bought was actually off market. So what are put options then? What if I told you you're using a concept of put options every day in your life? In fact, I just did it with my car insurance. So let's talk about put options. How does this work? Mark buys a car which is worth about $50,000 and is concerned he may be involved in an accident which requires repairs. He decides to ring you because you have a car insurance company and he wants to buy some insurance. That is, he wants to buy a put option on his car worth $50,000. The $50,000 is the strike price. You charge him, let's say, $1,000 per year for the privileges of having car insurance. So the put option premium becomes $1,000 per year. After the year, the insurance expires or contract expires, and this is the expiration date. You can renew it. So when you buy car insurance, you can renew it every year if you wanted to. So let's look at how things play out. Scenario one. Unfortunately, Mark has an accident and his car is a total write-off. Mark exercises his put option to claim on the insurance policy worth $50,000 or a brand new car. You have to pay Mark $50,000 or replace the car as per the contract. Mark continues to pay the option premium of $1,000 per year, which is the insurance premium. And Mark is very happy as his car insurance policy worked really well. This is exactly what he designed it to do. So his put option worked really well. There is another possibility in the scenario. In that one year that he has the insurance, Mark's car is fine. He doesn't have any repairs. He doesn't have any accidents. But Mark's actually happy because he's paid $1,000 in insurance premiums. But that's okay. He was protected for that time. So Mark doesn't exercise his put option. He doesn't claim on the insurance. Now, the insurance company owner, that's you, you're very happy because you just collected $1,000 for providing insurance. You collected the option premium irrespective of whether repairs are needed or not. Both of you continue to do business with each other, but you have multiple clients, not just Mark. You might have Sam, you might have Jenny, you might have Lisa. 
you actually have hundreds or even thousands of clients like Mark. So you make a lot of money by charging them an option premium, a put option premium on car insurance and run a thriving insurance company. Now, we all buy insurance for our homes, building, contents, car, life, whatever. That's kind of like a put option. Now, I just found these explanations very useful in understanding call and put options, and I hope this clears up any doubts you may have had. So essentially, call option buyers are bullish on the stock market. They think the market is going to go up in the short term, so they buy such derivatives in the hope the market rises, and then when it does, they exercise their option to buy the stock at the underlying stock price, and then they can go ahead and immediately sell the stock at the higher price. So their profit becomes the difference between the sell and buy price minus the option premium they paid for the privilege plus any brokerage fees they may have paid for controlling that stock. A put option, on the other hand, is when buyers are bearish on the market. They think the market will go down. So they buy such derivatives in the hope the market falls, and then when it does, they can exercise their put option to buy the underlying stock mm -hmm. at a lower price but they have sold it off at a higher price. Now, the profit is sell price minus buy price minus option premium plus any brokerage. Now, the formula for the profit is exactly the same, but the circumstances to which you might want to do a call option or a put option is different. Now, you can do this on a large scale, and people do this. They buy hundreds, thousands, if not millions of call or put options and derivatives and then choose to exercise them or not and make a lot of money. Hedge funds and speculative investors do this all the time on a large scale. And it's quite complex, And but, but you can see how derivatives such as options trading can potentially make you a lot of money, but you can also potentially lose a lot of money, and that's why I don't do it, because I don't speculate. So that's call and put options. What are financial swaps. This is the second type of derivative. It's interesting to talk about this. And once you understand call and put options, I find you can understand most other concepts pretty easily because it kind of relates to one another in a very specific way. So let's look at financial swaps, okay? So financial swaps are usually done by businesses and not by individual retail investors, okay? The most common type of swap is an interest rate swap, but you swap just just about anything. You can swap commodities, you can swap currency, debt equity, credit default swaps, etc, etc. So let's use an interest rate swap to see how this sort of derivative trading works. Now, remember our good old lemon stand business. It's back on the deck. So let's let's use that as an example, okay? You own a lemon stand business. School holidays are coming and you think business will be booming. You want to expand the business during school holidays because you need more hands on deck, you need more lemon machines, you need more lemons, you need more buying capacity, and you've just issued a bond of $5,000 over three years and are happy to pay a coupon rate of 3% higher than what the current RBA rates are. The current RBA rates are 0.75%, so you're happy to pay 3.5%, oh, sorry, 3.75%, I beg your pardon, in coupon rates fixed for three years. That's per year. Now, if you haven't listened to my bond podcast, which is called What Are Bonds, I think it's worthwhile to do so after this episode so you can understand bonds better. It's episode number 53. But let's proceed on with what are financial swaps using an interest rate swap example with the lemon stand business. Now, the reason why you're offering this bond is because you're nervous about interest rates rising over the next three years. So you want to try and get some security. Another business holder sees this opportunity and takes you up on this offer. So you are swapping interest rates. 
That is, the other business will take over your bond rate payments of 3% over the current RBA interest rate of 0.75%. That is, they will fund your bond's interest rate repayments or coupon payments. In exchange, you come up with an agreement with them, that is the other business, to pay the other business a fixed annual interest rate of 4% on a notional value of $5,000 over three years, which is the same as your bond issue. So let's see what happens in this case. If interest rates rise over three years, then essentially you will still pay 4% interest on the $5,000 to the other business because that's your agreement with the other business because they, in return, agreed to swap the interest rate with you and agreed to pay your coupon rates to whoever who bought the bond. The other business has agreed to pay your bond coupon rate, which is 3% higher than current RBA rate, right? So in year two, if the RBA rates are 1.5% instead of 0.75%, that is the interest rates have risen, then you will need to pay the coupon rates of 3 plus 1.5%, which is 4.5%. So the business now has to pay 4.5% coupon rate because that's what they've agreed to do. And remember, you did this specifically because you knew interest rates were going to go up. That was very smart. So you are only paying them 4% and already you've made a great decision on the interest rate swap. That is a derivative trade. If the interest rates fall even further in that three years, you can see how you will lose money because the other business which agreed to swap will make money. That is, the interest rate falls and you're still paying the 4% notional interest to the business, but the business only has to pay 3% plus whatever the RBA rate is. And if the RBA rate is zero, then they only have to pay 3% coupon rate. So they're one out in this case. So this is quite complex, but happens a lot between businesses and individual retail investors don't usually do such um, derivatives, um, particularly with swaps and derivative trading. So in summary, a financial swap is a derivative contract which one party exchange or swaps the cash flows or value of one asset for another. For example, a company paying a variable interest rate may swap its interest payments with another company that will pay the first company a fixed rate. Swaps can also be used to exchange other kinds of value or risk like bonds or credit default swaps, etc., etc. So that is financial swaps. It's actually relatively, uh, you know, when you first try and understand it, it can be quite complex. So why would anyone do this? But certainly not that complex once you understand, you know, other types of derivatives like call and put options, etc. So let's move on to the third type of derivative, which is warrants. Now, they're very similar to call or put options. Essentially, warrants are a derivative that give the right, but not the obligation, to buy or sell a security like stocks at a certain price before expiration. There is a strike price. There is a warrant premium for the privilege and an expiration time frame. Now, warrants that give a right to buy a security are called call warrants, and those that give the right to sell securities are called put warrants. Wait, isn't this the same as a call or put option? It sounds very similar, but there are two key differences. The company issues the warrants themselves. And it's not done through an exchange, such as call and put options are done via exchanges. And when new stock is bought as an option, such as a call warrant, the company issues the new stock, so it dilutes the pool. They don't sell existing stock to the buyer. Warrants can list for a long time, years and years and years, while as options are more short term, usually within a few months. Individuals can't write warrant contracts like they can 
option contracts. Otherwise, the two concepts, warrants and options, are very similar principles. So the two key differences are the company issues the warrants themselves and it's not done through an exchange. And when new stock is bought as an option, it dilutes the number of shares. They issue new shares, essentially. Okay? So that is warrants. So it's very similar to call and put options, except to those two key differences. And lastly, what are futures? Again, very similar to options and warrants, but in this case, the contracts are obligatory. That is, you can't renege on them and you can't have that option. Furthermore, with futures, it's highly leveraged. I've discussed leverage as a means to invest in episode 49 and compared it to margin loans, etc. Worthwhile listening to if you haven't already, um, especially if you don't have any idea about how powerful or dangerous leverage or margin can be. So let's use an example here to understand this point clearly. That is the point of futures. That is a form of derivative trading. Now, if you watch financial news channels, and I do watch financial news channels, but I don't pay attention to them. There's a difference between watching and paying attention. They talk about the futures are trading at, etc., etc. What does that mean? Let's say you want to speculate on the Dow Jones market. And there is an index fund for this. It's now October. And the December futures for this particular index fund is trading at $50 per unit for the Dow Jones market. You decide to speculate and buy 100 units at $5,000. Now, I'm simplifying this as much as possible, so bear with me. I'm sure there's a lot of investing pundits out there who are thinking, man, this guy's pretty basic. Um, but that's the whole point of this podcast channel. If you're an advanced trader, then you're probably laughing at all this. But if you're you know, relatively new and want to learn a lot of this sort of stuff, I'm trying to keep it as simple as possible for us regular folks. So bear with me. So now you've invested $5,000 in the futures of Dow Jones, one of the indexes. The end date for the futures contract is set at December the 15th. Now, today is October the 10th, so the end date is future, which is December the 15th. December 15th arrives, and lo and behold, the Dow Jones index has risen, and this translates to unit prices of $60 per unit. Therefore, you've just made a cool $10 per unit on your 100 units, which is a cool $1,000 profit. Great. However, if the unit price had fallen to $40 per unit, then you've just lost $1,000. That is, you've lost $10 per unit of trading. Importantly, though, you don't have the option to not buy or sell the index. You are obligated in the futures trading derivatives. But... You also need not have the whole $5,000 to buy the original 100 units. You could have got a margin loan or put a deposit in to do that. You could have got leverage. So this is where leverage comes in, where you're mixing futures, derivatives, trading and leverage. And futures markets are usually highly leveraged, but they are obligated purchases or sells. So that is futures trading using a very, very basic, basic example. Now, just to reiterate, there are four types of derivatives, options trading, financial swaps, futures trading, and warrants. And almost all of it is speculative investing, which I don't do. Okay, so if you're into that sort of stuff, it's probably worthwhile doing it. If you're not into it, I think it's worthwhile learning about it and try to apply it to other aspects of your life, like buying insurance, for example, which is technically having a put option. Um, so I think that's where I think it really hit at home for me, where 
a lot of people are probably doing this in their lives or very similar to what, what this is in their lives, but they're not doing it in the share market because obviously that's highly speculative. So hopefully this episode has opened your eyes about all these various types of derivatives. Now, before I finish up officially, this was an article, um, there was an article in August 2019 about um, the Australian Security and Investment Commission's intention to ban all binary options trading. So there's remember, there's options trading in all sorts of different financial assets and binaries, it's one of them. Now, binary options trading allows investors to make all or nothing bets on specific events within a specific time frame, but they are planning such bans only to retail investors, not institutional investors. So essentially, currently you're able to bet on an outcome of gold price within a 30-second period. Now, that's increasingly crazy speculation. You can bet on the outcome of gold price within a 30-second period. That's just crazy. But I guess institutional investors, large companies, and very, very smart people in banks and investment banks use such trading strategies to make a lot of money. If you watch a lot of YouTube, you might have noticed random people popping up in ads saying, I will teach you how to make money on binary options. And that's what this article is talking about. So there's a fair bit of scam going on there, particularly with retail investors. You can lose a lot of money just by gambling in the stock market. That's what this is, basically. Now... And Plus 500 is actually one of the companies that does this routinely on uh, uh, YouTube. They have a lot of ads, um, and I'm sure you've seen Plus 500 ads um, and other companies which are offering binary options trading as part of their business platform. So they'll be affected by this um, ban. I'm not sure whether it's live yet, um, but it's something that they're thinking about, certainly. So that's about it for this episode. Quite a long episode, 36 minutes already. So we've covered a lot in this episode. So let's just quickly summarize. Number one, RBA interest rates, they've reduced it um, and how it affects your mortgage rates and how you can benefit by not changing your financial behavior. This is when paying attention to the media helps. Um, well, sorry, watching the media helps and paying attention doesn't really help. Just do what you're doing. Just pay off that mortgage as quickly as possible. Literally adds tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in savings had you just completely paid off whatever the interest rate that you signed up for initially, okay? There are a lot of banks out there who are saying, well, reduce your interest rates and you can use that money to go spend and buy things that you don't like and don't need and don't probably want. Don't do that. And we've also talked about derivatives. What are they? We've discussed the various subtypes, options, swaps, warrants, and futures trading. And I've used hopefully very simple examples um, to try and make you understand that as best as you possibly can. And hopefully I've done a good enough job for you to have some understanding and hopefully go and do your own research and try and learn about it even more. Remember, knowledge is power. You know, I'm not here to tell you what to do, but I'm here to impart knowledge and I'm here to learn as well. And certainly I have learned from a lot of research and I've also learned from a lot of people who just message me on Facebook or on CastBox or on Spotify, whatever it is, um, to just explain to me what they're doing and um, and certainly messages from Whirlpool people as well to sort of explain to me, okay, well, this is what they're doing. Um, and how I can benefit from that, which is, you know, it's all part of learning. Hope you enjoyed this podcast episode and thanks for the messages and questions. Keep them coming. I'm always happy to answer to the best of my ability, but do discuss it also with your financial advisor, accountants and other professionals. Remember the five steps, pay yourself first, invest, reinvest dividends, do it for the long term and always, always automate the investments. Now, the mantra of this podcast channel, those are the five key steps I think if you master, uh, if you just do it, you're less likely to spend money, you're more likely to save money, 
And even if you don't do either of those, you're more likely to execute the plan for the long term. And long-term consistency is what builds wealth, not short-term consistency. Until next time, learn about personal finance and investing concepts and learn about derivatives. This is DevRaka Personal Finance, Episode 56. Thank you for listening and stay safe. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 